This is The Full Story. I'm Tom Kuser. 2023 was a year that once again saw climate change and air pollution as major challenges. WSHU reported on the additional damage that wildfires in Canada caused locally. Connecticut residents may see a change in air quality this week after wildfires in Nova Scotia resulted in large plumes of smoke. The Canadian government predicts the risk for wildfires in Canada to remain high all summer. And these climate disasters are becoming more common and severe. Plumes of smoke are pushed by the wind from north to south, which is why New York City and western parts of the state are seeing the smokiest skies. New York and Connecticut officials advise people to stay indoors. For several days in July, the sky was filled with a noxious yellow haze that traveled across the Northeast to the Midwest and even to Europe, forcing many people to once again wear masks. The air has cleared of wildfire smoke for now. But some experts say the problem's not going away and we'll have to find ways to manage this environmental crisis in the future. To learn more about the impact of the wildfire smoke in our region, what other forms of pollution are in the air we breathe, and what's being done to address all of that, we invited two representatives from the American Lung Association to join us. On Zoom with me are Trevor Summerfield, the Director of Advocacy for the American Lung Association in New York, and Dr. David Hill, a pulmonologist and a board member of the association in Connecticut. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Certainly. Reports from the Canadian Forest Service at Natural Resources Canada say that the 2023 fire season is really record-breaking, and the amount of area burned exceeds historic records. It's a huge environmental issue. Dr. Hill, if we could start with you, what can you tell us about the smoke here in Connecticut, what impact has it had on the air here? So we had close to five days of really poor air quality related uh, to that wildfire situation. What we're talking about there is particle pollution where the particles are small enough to be able to be inhaled into your lungs. What I saw in my own practice is my patients with asthma and COPD were calling the office and really over the week or two following the wildfires, Many patients were becoming so ill, they had to go to the hospital for care. So the at-risk populations really suffer when the air quality is poor like this, but some of the days it was dangerous really for anyone who breathes. And we know that smoke uh, disregards political boundaries between states as far as Connecticut and New York, but the geographical differences may uh, have an effect. Uh, Trevor Summerfield, what's your data telling you about the impact in New York? The impact of wildfires in New York is significant. When you look at the state of the air report that the American Lung Association releases every year, you don't really see that data collected in terms of particle pollution or that we haven't seen um, in the air uh, significantly over the last few years. But as we've already said here today, we're seeing more of that type of weather. Just the past couple of years alone, while we didn't reach the dangerous levels um, of unhealthy air quality here in New York and Connecticut, But we have seen wildfire smoke drift from places like California, Western Canada, and of course this year now right above us in parts of Ontario and Quebec. You've both talked about uh, particle pollution or particle smoke. What do we know about what's in the smoke from a medical perspective and how it affects uh, the body, in particular lungs, uh, 
how we handle air pollutants. Uh, Dr. Hill, what happens to the health of people who live in an area with poor air quality over a long period of time? So exposure to particle pollution is associated with worsening of lung disease in patients who already have it, so particularly people with asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It's also associated with new onset asthma, um, particularly in children. So children have smaller lungs and breathe more air uh, surface area when they're outside and tend to spend more time outside than adults. It's also associated with cardiovascular disease, so heart attacks and strokes. And uh, there are some associates, associations with particle pollution exposure and development of lung cancer, uh, even in non-smokers. As you've uh, both pointed out, the American Lung Association has paid attention to air quality for many years. I'm wondering, and a question for both of you, are the wildfires, the smoke from the wildfires, uh, is this the most pressing air quality issue in our region right now, Dr. Hill? I think it's a combination. Typically here in the Northeast, we suffer a lot from ozone pollution, particularly in the hot and hazy summer months. So when you look at air quality locally, both wildfire smoke and ozone pollution are compounded by climate change. So the reason we're seeing so many large wildfires is because it is hotter and drier. There's not as much of a snowpack uh, in the northern woods. There hasn't been as much rain, and those forests are set to burn. Ozone pollution, which we see in the summer months, is formed when volatile or organic compounds combine with heat uh, and a chemical reaction occurs. So the hotter it is, the more ozone pollution there is. So both forms of air pollution that really affect the population in our area are related to climate change. And this is a wake up call. The number of wildfires are estimated to increase by six times over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. And if we don't do things to mitigate carbon pollution, we're gonna have worse air pollution. And as you said, uh, the air does not believe in borders, international, statewide, everyone who breathes will be affected. And uh, Mr. Summerfield, uh, New York, of course, stretching all the way from Long Island to the Canadian border. Uh, the same uh, same perspective from uh, from your stance as far as uh, pressing air quality issues in the region? Absolutely. To build on Dr. Hill's comment as well, um, looking specifically at the New York City metro area, which we know contains counties in and around New York City, mm -hmm. Long Island, and Connecticut. Um, when you're looking at ozone pollution, we know Fairfield County um, had the most days of unhealthy ozone levels um, in that report. Um, Suffolk County was right behind it. But what's concerning and becoming the new normal um, and why it is so important that we continue to address carbon emissions, um, not just here in New York, but across the country, is that when this report comes out again and again over the next few years, New York City and New York State, you know, by, by and large, generally we receive very um, favorable grades in that report. We're going to see, though, you know, days where most counties report zero days with fine particle pollution. Um, we're going to see those days in, uh, jump in numbers, um, and their grades are going to go from A's to F, and we just are going to have to look forward to that for the next two years in that report. Um, but we know there are ways now that we're aiming to address climate change, and we just need to stay on the ball and keep at it. Given the fact that, uh, and you both mentioned that this appears like it'll be an ongoing environmental concern in the future, smoke from wildfires. Does that change at all the way the American Lung Association evaluates 
the air quality, any of the, the systems that you use to look at the way the air is now and uh, perhaps predict how things will be down the road? Mr. Summerfield? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm not sure, and I'd be happy to look into that. I would say that the report right now looks at EPA monitors um, across the country. So they are not in every county, um, but we're working on getting more of those placed um, across the state. New York State is also taking efforts into its own hands as well by installing more hyper-local air quality monitors um, that are attached to cars and actually currently going around New York City at the moment, too, to try to get better reads and more hyper-local reads. Dr. Hill, your thoughts about that? I think it's really important that we do monitor air pollution on a local level. Um, that can guide uh, everyone in terms of when it's safe to do things outside and when they should really stay inside and try to avoid it. If you go to airnow.gov, you can see the air quality near you, but that's dependent on the monitoring station. So sometimes it can be air quality over a really large region. And we know that air quality varies depending on exactly where you are, what altitude you're at, how the winds are blowing. The Lung Association also provides a lot of resources on our website, lung.org, where people can learn about pollution and how it affects your health. And we have our Lung Helpline, which you can call 1-800-LUNG-USA, and actually speak to our nurse or respiratory therapist to get more information. I think it might be helpful to sort of define healthy versus unhealthy. How does the American Lung Association qualify something as healthy, where does it become unhealthy, and is there some region in between that uh, that separates the two? Dr. Hill? So the EPA has what's called an air quality index, which takes into account both ozone and particulate pollution and rates air quality from anything to good to very dangerous, uh, hazardous. I will say that um, the Lung Association has some concerns that even at limits that are set now, air pollution can still be dangerous to the health, particularly of people at risk. So we think the standards are not as strong as they should be, but it does provide a decent baseline of knowing you can look and say, we're in the green, it's safe to go outside. People have gotten used to this looking at things like the heat index or pollen counts Air quality is another thing we should be paying attention to as just part of the weather report, particularly as things get unfortunately worse. The state of the air report that the American Lung Association issues for each county in the United States, we've been talking a bit about that. Can you talk a bit more about how these grades are calculated, Mr. Summerfield? Yeah, so it, it looks first and foremost at every single state across the country. And it looks at where we have air quality monitors mostly provided from the EPA. So we're not getting data from every single county across the country. Um, but what the report does, and in New York State, we have about 26 counties that collect data. But it looks at the number of high ozone days and the number of high particle pollution days during a three-year period. The latest report covers the years between 2019 and 2021. Um, and it looks at the days, again, where... The air quality might be in the orange, red, purple area where we know that's very unhealthy and will not only impact sensitive groups, but can also impact a healthy general public as well. And that calculates the days in those areas um, and gives you a grade, uh, a letter grade beyond that that's hopefully easily digestible by both the public and lawmakers. You mentioned this before, uh, Mr. Summerfield, and I want to ask Dr. Hill 
um, more specifics about it. Last year, the State of the Air report stated, quote, Fairfield County remains the most polluted county in the New York Newark metro area and has the highest ozone readings in the eastern U.S. with 18.8 days of unhealthful levels of ozone. This is the county's best reading in any state of the air report to date. Uh, Why is this area so problematic? Why is Fairfield County, and again, understanding that, um, you know, bad air and smoke uh, uh, travels across borders indiscriminately, why is Fairfield County so problematic? So it's a combination of things in Fairfield County. Um, Connecticut has in the past been referred to as the tailpipe of the country. Mm, I've heard that, yes. <laughs> Part of air pollution from the mid-Atlantic and Midwest just due to the way the winds blow gets transmitted into Fairfield County, parts of New York, and the rest of the Northeast. And on top of that, it's a very heavily traveled highway corridor uh, with I-95 coming up to New England out of New York and a lot of pollution related to vehicular traffic. So those two things combine to really make the air quality there particularly poor. And getting into another definition or understanding of of different types of pollution, Mr. Summerfield, could you tell us the difference more specifically between things we've been talking about here uh, during uh, during this uh, conversation, particle pollution and ozone pollution? Both can be raised or both can rise to unhealthy levels, but what's the difference between the two? I think for the uh, listeners here, I think the um, easiest way to discern between the two is when you talk about ozone pollution, think of the words that we generally think about like smog, right? We know there's a haze in the sky. We're going to see that. Particle pollution is more of that fine particulate matter, more like soot. So if you're thinking about actively burning fire, the debris that comes from that. Also, you know, when you're talking about fine particle pollution, that's something that you can't see. So even if the air looks hazy, it looks, you know, something like we know there's a heavy ozone day, might have to take it easy outside. Fine particle pollution can be there and we might not be able to see it. Um, So it's important to check those readings. And we just came out of a pandemic, right? A lot of us have N95 masks around. If you do have to go outside, if you do need to limit your exposure, put one of those on for a little bit while you're out there. Before we began this uh, conversation, I was talking with uh, and Lopez, our senior producer, and we both agreed that during those heavy smoke days, something we did notice was sort of a back-of-the-throat coating or, or, or something that we, we really didn't experience when the air was described as heavy with ozone. Yeah, I think when the, when the air quality is that poor with particle and wildfire smoke, you can, you can feel it. You don't want to get to the point where you're having that sensation because it probably means you've already been too exposed. You know, and I know people were saying to me, I can't smell the smoke. It can't be that bad. If you can smell the smoke, it's definitely really bad, but it can be really poor air quality before it gets to the point where you're smelling smoke. Uh, So, Dr. Hill, as these wildfires continue in Canada and most likely elsewhere uh, down the road and the smoke continues to uh, cross over our skies. What should people do to protect their health? What, what are some of the basic things we should be doing? So, again, paying attention to that air quality. So when, when uh, it's predicted, um, typically our radio stations and TV stations, National Weather Service issues warnings. And if that's the case, uh, number one, if you're in a high-risk group, if you're children, uh, if you're over the age of 65 or you have heart or lung disease, you really want to pay attention. 
But even if you're a young, healthy person, choosing when you pursue outdoor activities, exercise or gardening, uh, any kind of heavy things, you want to avoid it when the air quality is poor. We know this is associated with uh, worsening health problems really for everyone. So timing the activities, choosing when you do or don't do things outside. And I find it sad, you know, because I think my grandkids are going to have less days where they're able to safely pursue outdoor activities, particularly if we don't really do some things to limit this. Mr. Summerfield, has the American Lung Association promoted any specific policies to address the impact of the smoke from the wildfires in the U.S.? Absolutely. And just last year, um, New York adopted two rules to address transportation pollution, um, the advanced clean truck rule and the advanced clean car rules. Those will put out year dates uh, to where all cars are going to have to be zero emission by a certain point and trucks. So we know that's going to address one major uh, factor when it comes to our air pollution. This past year, we also endorsed something called the All Electric Building Act, um, and that's going to require new construction of uh, buildings less than six stories uh, beginning in 2026 and over that in 2029, but all construction there be uh, zero emission as well. So we're taking steps here in New York. Um, and I think you can point to New York as a leader on that and right over in Connecticut as well. They have passed um, the advanced clean truck rules and clean car rules. Um, they just need to be um, adopted fully um, and go through the regular pro or regulatory process in Connecticut. Uh, and I I think it's important to note on a national level, we've also uh, recently released our Driving to Clean Air report, which really talks about the health benefits of switching to zero emission vehicles. Um, and if we have zero emission vehicles running on clean electricity, we're talking about over $900 billion in healthcare savings by 2050, along with close to 90,000 lives saved. So it's an investment to make these changes, but it's an investment that has a really tremendous return in terms of health care benefits and health care dollars. Dr. Hill, do you think the states in our region are working together enough to address air quality concerns? I think we're fortunate in the Northeast that our states are taking steps to move in the right direction and uh, at times working hand in hand to try to limit pollution, but there is more they can do. Mr. Summerfield, you mentioned uh, Connecticut passing some of the measures that uh, New York led with. Uh, what's your perspective on regional cooperation when it comes to uh, air quality problems? I, I think it's been very good across the Northeast. Whether you're talking about New York, Vermont, Jersey, our, our whole region here has been I think really working hand in hand in a lot of ways. I know not just at the government level, but also the advocacy um, in nonprofit level as well, and communities coming together, talking, sharing their concerns, um, and really communicating about this. So I, I would agree with David. It looks like the region works really well together, but there is always uh, more that can be done. And I think, you know, there's so much going on um, that it's always great to keep people as informed as possible. What about getting down to the hyper-local level? What can residents do in their own communities to help improve air quality, would you say? Mr. Summerfield. Well, one of the things I encourage people to do, um, not just because it's good for your health, but it is good for air quality, and that's walk. Um, if you have ways to not hop into your personal car in particular, take mass transit if you have to take a vehicle. Walk, take a bike, get out there, be healthy, enjoy the good air quality while it's here um, and it's out there, um, and go do that. But that's something somebody can do at an individual level that's easy to do. I find fun to do. Nice. Go talk to your neighbors. Get out there in the community and uh, enjoy the air. Yeah, Dr. Hill, your thoughts? 
Uh, yeah, I think on an you know individual basis, taking advantage of some of the incentives that are out there now to go green. There's tremendous incentives in terms of converting to solar power, electric vehicles, heat pumps, and things that will improve the environment, and also encouraging our municipalities to do the same. So when they're replacing vehicle fleets, going green, and running our town offices on, on solar, uh, all can be steps to get us in the right direction. And, and I think to add to David's point there too, because I think this is really important for your listeners, but the uh, rebates and incentives coming as a result of the National Infrastructure Act that was passed, hopefully will alleviate some of the concerns people might have about purchasing some new appliances. Trevor Summerfield is the American Lung Association's Director of Advocacy in New York, and Dr. David Hill is a pulmonologist and a board member of the American Lung Association in Connecticut. Gentlemen, thanks for your time today and for your insights about uh, the state of air quality in our region and what can be done to move toward uh, fixing it. Thank you. Thank you. Wildfire smoke compromises the quality of air, not just for people, but for just about every living thing. Dr. Christina Wagstrom tracks the impact air pollution has on the environment in Connecticut. She is an Eversource Energy Associate Professor of Environmental Engineering Education at the University of Connecticut. And Dr. Wagstrom joins us via Zoom. Welcome. Hello. Nice to chat with you today. (laughs) Yeah, same here. Maybe, and this may seem obvious, but maybe first we should actually define air pollution. When we use the term air pollution, what are we really talking about? Well, so um, you can be talking about a lot of different things when we're talking about air pollution. When we're talking about uh, the wildfire smoke, we'll start there. Um, Mm -hmm. The main air pollutant that we were uh, concerned about was something called particulate matter. So these are really small um, particles. They can be solid or liquid that are suspended in air. And one of the main impacts we see from wildfire smoke. There are some gases in there that aren't great either, but the main impact we're looking at is that particulate matter. Um, But then there is also, just for completeness, uh, there's also other air pollution that is of concern. So that can include things like ozone, which around Connecticut we've probably heard about. And then there's a variety of other things like sulfur dioxide, NOx, carbon monoxide, that we worry about in different areas at different times. And whether we're indoors or outdoors, there's a difference. So there's a lot that falls under that umbrella of air pollution. Does it always fall under the category of man-made pollution? Now, a wildfire, I suppose you could argue climate change, wildfires, but uh, a fire that's ignited by lightning or something, that's not necessarily man-made, but it does cause that kind of pollution. Yeah. So um, so when we think about air pollution, we sometimes will divide it into kind of two categories where we have something we call anthropogenic or man-made air pollution. And so that's air pollution that's resulting from human activities. And then we have biogenic air pollution. And I mean, that's that's coming from actual uh, natural processes. So things like lightning. So when lightning strikes, not only might it start a fire, but it can also create knocks um, in the air around it there are naturally occurring levels of particulate matter because we had um, we had dusty areas, things get suspended, um, trees can get off, give off organic gases, but a lot of times this biogenic component is just one fraction of it. And then you have that man-made 
side of things. And then, yeah, you have the stuff that falls in the middle that can be a little hard to classify. So something like wildfire smoke, well, you know, wildfires in some ways feel natural, but then, you know, are the fires worse because of things that we as humans have done? And so then what do we call it then? Or let's say you have deforestation somewhere and that results in more dust getting suspended. That can also cause problems in defining whether it's natural or human. Going back uh, some years, according to an interview published in 2019 in Yukon Today, you said overall air quality in the U.S. has improved dramatically since the passing of the Clean Air Act back in 1970. Yet each year, particulate matter still leads to the deaths of 88,000 Americans, and that's around twice the number of people killed by cars, uh, car accidents annually. Do those numbers still hold true today? Are they higher, lower in 2023? I don't know those numbers off the top of my head. Okay. Um, if you give me a second, I can look them up. But, I mean, they wouldn't have changed dramatically. Uh, with that same question, comparing the improved air quality since the Clean Air Act 1970, but more particular, more particulate matter, things are at odds with, with each other there. Uh, part of it's worse, part of it's better? The levels of particulate matter have also gone down dramatically since the 1970s. Anybody who's ever lived in an old steel town can tell you that when they see the old pictures. I lived in Pittsburgh for a while and they definitely see that. So we have seen decreases. The problem is, you know, just because it's decreased does not mean it's decreased to a point that we don't see any impacts anymore. I would say those numbers aren't necessarily at odds. It's just if we did the back calculation of how many um, deaths we were seeing that were likely attributable to particular matter back in the 70s, it would have just been a much higher fraction. While it isn't as bad as it used to be, it is still a concern that we need to address, particularly from a socioeconomic standpoint and looking at environmental justice, because air pollution concerns are also not evenly um, distributed amongst the population, the impacts. The smoke from the wildfires in Canada Looking at a couple of photos I took back in uh, early June at home down on the coast uh, in Connecticut, uh, not far out of Fairfield County, the sky just had this weird yellowish color. The sunshine on the sidewalk, it looked like I was wearing those odd yellow glasses, just as very surreal sort of look. Is this a new phenomenon, this kind of wildfire problem, at least in our neck of the woods? No pun intended. Um. So um, just to start with, uh, kind of that discoloration is from the sunlight getting kind of reflected off all those particles that can cause that change in color. It's something called me scattering. As far as whether it's a, a new concern, it is definitely a case where having to check air now routinely to see what the impact from wildfire smoke is, is maybe something we in Connecticut are not in the habit of doing, like maybe they are in California, um, Colorado, out west. So I would say it's potentially, it's a, it's a newer phenomenon, definitely um, how big the impact is. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a one-time thing, though, because we, we have to look at what's going on with changes in climate. So I still check air now routinely to make sure that um, I don't want to, like, not go uh, for a walk or a run. So even though I can look out the window right now and sky. I mean, there are some clouds, but I'm not seeing that eerie yellow color. Does that mean there is no impact right now from the wildfire smoke coming out of Canada? Yeah. So 
the pollution's not always being blown directly towards us, which is why, you know, for a while we were impacted. Sometimes the Midwest was impacted and kind of depended. The impact right now, if you were to look at, if you ever want to know, you can look at the fire and smoke map on EPA's Air Now site. And it's amazing uh, color coded, it kind of shows you where the smoke's going. And what you'd see if you look today is that we're kind of on the edge of where maybe there's a very small impact, but nothing that we're likely to notice a lot when you go outside. And generally speaking, is it true that if we don't see the smoke, then there really is nothing to worry about as far as going outside? Don't necessarily uh, want to entirely say that because depending on where you are, it may be harder to see. With the really heavy uh, high impacts that we had back in June and in a little bit in early July, uh, those definitely you could see the impact. Um, You could smell the impact. Um, So if you're to the point that you can definitely see it, you can definitely smell it, I I strongly suggest you consider maybe curtailing any really um, heavy exertion outside. But there will be days in which maybe the impact isn't quite as high, but there is still an impact that may be a little harder to see where you might think, oh, it's due to the humidity. And if you're uncertain, you can check that website. And also what's going to impact one person may not impact another person the same way. So if somebody has asthma, their threshold for going outside may be different. So they may need to be a little more vigilant about checking that air quality index, checking to see if they should really be going outside as much. What about the environment, generally speaking? So we know, we hear all about the impact that, as you've just been discussing, that smoke can have on individuals, and it varies from person to person. What about the environment in general, other other living creatures, um, trees, just generally speaking? Does the smoke have an impact on, on uh, them as well? So the smoke can have an impact, particularly some of those really high levels we saw for a while there. You know, the the way it blocks out the sunlight can be really confusing to animals because they use sunlight for a lot of their triggers of when to sleep and when to do different things. So you can see sometimes animals behaving what would be considered oddly because their their cues are thrown off. For the most part, as far as we know, a lot of animals have some of the same health concerns from the exposure as we would. So if you shouldn't be out breathing heavily, maybe you don't want to go ride your horse hard that day or, you know, send your dog out to play for many, many hours in the yard because they're going to still be inhaling it. They also have lungs, right? And as far as the trees go, um, when you see enough of it, I mean, it can impact some of the uh, photosynthesis they're doing. That smoke can settle onto the leaves, which can be a little harmful. I'm not quite as well versed on exactly what's going on there, but the potential for impacts particularly when we have these really high concentrations of smoke that we're seeing. We've heard from uh, several experts in the field, including yourself, that this is, to some extent, only the beginning. Earlier, we spoke with Dr. David Hill, a pulmonologist and board member of the American Lung Association in Connecticut. And he described what's happening now as a wake-up call. And he said the number of wildfires are expected to increase six times over the next 10 to 20 years. And we really need to do something now to mitigate carbon pollution. Is that a, a concern that you agree with? I mean, I, I definitely agree with that That concern that this is a wake-up call that, you know, climate change and these impacts that we know climate change has been having on wildfire frequency, suddenly we are feeling it here on the East Coast. For a while, a lot of people dismissed it as kind of a West Coast problem, and we had very little impact. So we are feeling it here, and um, I think that's definitely a concern and kind of a wake-up call that we 
we really do need to be doing something to address this or else it will just keep getting worse. According to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre, from the beginning of January to July, there have been uh, 4,665 fires uh, with 11.6 million acres burned. Uh, Again, this is in Canada. Uh, Trees, of course, important to the ecosystem. I've got a couple of questions connected with that uh, that data, those statistics. First of all, that would suggest this is a long-term problem. What kind of long-term impact could there be on the environments? We know from day to day what uh, what we see and what we feel. Are there are there more severe long-term consequences to more persistent smoke? There are long-term concerns for the more persistent smoke in that it means we're just going to have more and more of these days in which we're going to have these high levels of smoke. There's a lot of concern about you know, such a large area burning where that's that burning itself is releasing a lot of additional carbon into the atmosphere. And that is a very big concern too. And such a large area burning, it makes it difficult for them to um, control. And so we're kind of just waiting and hoping that the uh, seasonal shift is enough to put them out. But uh, some of what I've heard is there's even some concerns that that'll be enough this year. I was wondering about that, too, um, transitioning from season to season. Does that change the air quality in Connecticut, for example, you know, spring compared to winter? Oh, definitely. So in Connecticut, um, when we actually look at um, how Connecticut meets air quality standards. So Connecticut is actually what's known as in attainment. So we're meeting the air quality standard for a particular matter. But Connecticut is out of attainment um, or non-attainment for the ozone standard. So ozone is actually, from a regulatory standpoint, our biggest pollutant of concern, and that is highly seasonal. So um, ozone forms due to some reactions that occur in the atmosphere is not directly emitted. So it's all chemistry in the atmosphere. And one of the drivers is you need the sun to to drive some reactions and you need temperatures that are higher. So where you're really gonna see ozone, we consider like the ozone season is really you know, mid to late spring in, until mid to late fall, um, not winter. So our concerns about ozone are really in the summer. And then in winter, you might have more localized concerns like biomass burning to heat homes and things like that. So so you might see more of those kinds of concerns that we're looking at. I often see <laughs> air quality alerts in that time period that uh, you're talking about, not only for Connecticut, but for New York City and uh, Long Island as well, Suffolk County, Nassau County. Mm-hmm. This this um, entire corridor up from New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, this whole corridor is kind of, it's called like the ozone transport corridor because um, a lot of the pollutants that are needed to make ozone kind of get transfer, transported within this corridor and get transformed. And fortunately, where we're located, we kind of sometimes bear the brunt of it. <laughs> the damage that wildfire smoke can cause, and as you pointed out, mm-hmm. the West Coast has had a lot more experience with this. Uh, I'm wondering, can the environment recover from from the damage that it causes? So do you mean the environment around here or the environment more, like, uh, more locally? nearer to the fires? Uh, I get, well, I, I would ask both questions. Around here, I mean, <laughs> we see the smoke and uh, we see the colors that it uh, creates and we can uh, feel it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, long-term damage uh, we talked about, and, and is there a way to recover from that if the smoke disappears and 
it's not around for 10 years, for example. Uh, does the environment come back from that, or is a longer period of time needed? If, let's say, we, we had 10 years and there were no wildfires mm. in Canada and we never really got impacted by the ones out west, a lot of those impacts would go away. If people had had um, really strong acute exposures, um, they may have some slight lasting irritation, but most people would probably recover from it if it's just the occasional exposure. That being said, I don't recommend um, exposing yourself to large levels of air pollution uh, without having a reason. <laughs> is there is there something that uh, we can do, the everyday person can do to reduce air pollution and improve air quality for not only ourselves, but the environment, generally speaking? So starting with for yourselves. And so one of the things you can do is you can always check what the air pollution looks like before you engage in outdoor activities. Indoor areas, if, you, um, if you're concerned about high levels outside coming in or other air pollution sources inside, you can always have some sort of air purifier. Um, I highly recommend mechanical ones, so HEPA filtration or anything that's going to mechanically remove things, not things that are necessarily chemically removing pollutants because you can create new pollutants that way. You know, if you're going to ride your bike, maybe don't ride it right beside the freeway. Go ride it somewhere further away from traffic. As far as more overall things that we can do, a lot of those those decisions that we've we've been told since we were kids to do, you know, if you don't need to drive your car from point A to point B and you could walk or you could bike, consider doing that. Keep in mind that a lot of our activities produce air pollution. So, you know, how much we heat our homes. A lot of people in rural Connecticut, you're heating with fuel oil or wood or something like that. And the more the warmer you decide to keep your home, the more you're gonna be burning and putting up in the atmosphere. And I'm not saying don't heat your home because it's Connecticut, we get cold, but ask yourself how warm your home needs to be. Same thing with air conditioning. How cold does your home need to be? You may not be making the emissions right by your house when you're air conditioning, but there is a power plant that is burning stuff to make your electricity, most likely. So, Dr. Christina Wagstrom is the head of the Computational Atmospheric Chemistry and Exposure Laboratory at UConn. She along with her department, tracks uh, air pollution, the impact of air pollution uh, on the environment in Connecticut. Thank you so much for sharing uh, what you know about, especially wildfire smoke. Uh, We all find that interesting. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this chapter of The Full Story. Be sure to keep up to date with our latest posts. Subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The full story is produced by Fatou Sangare, Sophie Kamizi, and senior producer Dan Lopez. I'm Tom Kuser. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.